You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Tish Ferguson. Tish is a hair and makeup maven, beauty educator, content creator, and melanin specialist. As a young child, Tish was always encouraged to let her inner light shine bright. And by the time she got to high school, she was driven to do all the things and win big. Now, this drive earned her the nickname Thirsty. And while her classmates may have meant this in a negative context, Tish developed thick skin and embraced the descriptor as something positive. She knew by her senior year that she did not want to attend college. But without an alternative plan, she enrolled at Lincoln University with the intention of pursuing her interest in English and journalism. She also joined a fashion organization on campus and started honing her hair and makeup skills. But by her junior year, much of her focus was on that instead of attending classes. Tish ended up staying at Lincoln for all four years, but did not actually graduate. And instead of making up for the lost time, she decided to return home and eventually landed a job in sales for the local cable company. While she did find some success there, a series of events led her to take a leave of absence to figure out what would really make her happy. It was during that time that Tish rediscovered her passion for glam. And she learned to leverage the power of social media to create opportunities for herself. This would take her from small one-off gigs to bigger opportunities, such as working on video shoots. Tish found her lane and was able to make beauty her full-time thing. Today, her brand is fully diversified and includes merchandise and beauty brand management and coaching. Something tells me that Tish is just getting started. So here's her story. Please enjoy. Tish, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to be here. Excited. So, you know, we keep it like all the way real on this show. We were supposed to do this like a while ago um, in the middle of the whole pandemic crazy. And DeMarcus and I at the last minute got a vaccination appointment. So mm-hmm. we had to reschedule then. Then you got an amazing opportunity and left the country. So yeah. <laughs> now you're back. We just saw each other earlier in the week because you've been People should know you're a friend to the show. This is not like some guests we don't know. Um, yes. So you have been involved in our soon to come rebranding, which I'm really excited about. And uh, now we're finally getting a chance to sit down and talk. Yeah, I'm excited about this. When when you guys asked me, I was like, I've been waiting for the ask ever since you guys started. So and you I'm know excited. what's funny? So many people say that and we're like, you know, you should have just told us they wanted to be on the show. <laughs> Because it's real for us, it's not a like, oh, you know, we literally just aren't thinking. And I think sometimes folks who are behind the scenes, folks mm. in terms of what they do, we just assume they don't want to be on camera. And uh, oh. and then so and then once you started putting out more content, we were like, oh, Tish is out here doing it. So um, so we're, we're happy we made this happen. But all things happen in divine order. So mm-hmm. this must be the perfect time to do it. Yep, exactly. All right. So let's get into it. Who is Tish Ferguson? Who is Tish Ferguson? Well, first of all, Tish Ferguson is Tishana Ferguson. Um, My brand is Tish Ferguson. Um, But it's funny because I've never had a nickname. And when I was going through the period of what do I want to do with my future? 
Um, I decided that I was going to shorten my name, number one, because I was tired of people messing it up. Um, And number two, I was becoming a new person in this whole finding what I wanted to do, you know, with my life and with my career. So uh, Tashana is loving, caring. She's soft and sensitive and emotional on the inside. She's hard as a rock on the outside. She is a woman that is ever always discovering herself and making new self-discoveries and always going on a new journey to become the best person and the best woman that I can absolutely be, what God put me here for. I'm also a businesswoman um, that is in the process of scaling and growing her business. I'm a beauty professional. Um, makeup is my ministry. Um, I pour into people through beauty. Um, I'm also a sister. I'm a new auntie. I'm a daughter. I am a girlfriend to an amazing man. I'm all things. And it's funny because if you would have asked me this question, maybe like three years ago, I would have led with business. Like I'm a beauty professional and this is what I do. And through quarantine, I'm like, that's not all I do. Like what's going to happen if you know, if I didn't have these things, who am I? Mm-hmm. What does Tashana like to do? What makes her smile? What makes her happy? And so I'm, I'm happy I'm able to answer the question with all of the things that make up Tashana. So let's talk about young Tashana first, because I, I find when people say uh, I'm, you know, emotional and sensitive on the inside, but hard as a rock on the outside somebody who can relate, um, that there are life experiences and like an upbringing or something or some things that shape a person into becoming that. So what is it about your origin story that you think contributed to sort of this dual personality that you have? Um, well, I do feel as though I, my default is just sensitive and emotional. (laughs) And I remember when I was a kid, uh, my father or my mother, if they said something to me, I would just start crying. Like I was not the kid that you had to do extra reinforcement to get your point across. All you had to do was look at me a certain type of way and I'm just in tears. And I remember my parents would always be like, stop that crying. Like we can't even have a conversation with you without crying. Um, And so over time, uh, especially as an adult, I've tried to kind of suppress my feelings so that the tears don't come. And so that has made me a little hard in a way. Um, Also, you know, young Tish, five-year-old Tish, always had positive reinforcement. I was the first grandchild. I am the first grandchild. I'm the first child of my mom. And so I always had the light shining on me. And I was always allowed to shine bright. And then as you get older and you get put into society and you go through school and I would be called things like I'm a show off or, you know, all I care about is myself or things like that. So that made me kind of like mute myself in a way. So that's the, the hard demeanor, the defensiveness, you know, um, and I have a lot of ego. Uh, that I am working on um, putting in check because ego is necessary in certain situations in your life, but it's not necessary in others. And so that ego can start to come out 
and it's automatically defensive and aggressive. And um, so that's where that heart as a rock comes from as well. But you know, what's interesting is you, you don't hear often the stories of children saying that they were empowered and, you know, the, a, a light was on them and they, certain things were instilled in them in a way where they went out into the world confident. And I'm not saying like it doesn't happen, but you don't you know, hear about it as much. And then the flip side of that is always they've gotten out into the world and people try to dim that light. There's that viral clip of Venus and Serena's dad. I don't know if you've seen it. And the interviewer is trying to put seeds, so seeds of doubt, I think, into Venus's mind about her ability to win. And her dad, like, shut the interview down. Like, don't do that. Don't do that. She said she believes she can win and she can win. Um, so, like, when you say that you had confidence out in the world and, and people, you know, would see that, necess- you know, what might see that as being a show off, how did that manifest specifically? What do you mean? Like, what particular situations would I Right. Like, why are, yeah, why are they, why were they <laughs> deeming you a show off? Because I'm loud and I'm rambunctious. I was a cheerleader since I was nine years old. Um, And so in high school, I was the girl doing cartwheels in the hallway. Um, I was friends with everyone. For for senior superlatives, I got um, uh, school spirit, you know, and uh, another superlative that I got was worst car. And I ran around that school with pride because I was like, but I have a car. So, and so I always had like just this extra confidence. And I think when people, especially kids that don't understand where their feelings are coming from, because they're not being empowered at home, they can be mean to kids that do understand their power and their confidence and try to dim it. And I, that is so many layers because, because mm-hmm. that's, it, it really goes back to like, there's people that I'm, I'm friends with now as an adult that I would consider kind of bullied me when I was a kid. And it's because I have compassion for the 15 year old them. Like they had no idea, you know, they weren't getting poured into at home. Like when you can like, Think about it from that perspective. Everything that children do in school is just a reflection of what is at home nine times out of 10. Um, Yeah. So different situations like that, it was always uh, I had a nickname called Thirsty. They called me Thirsty my freshman year um, because I wanted to do everything. I went to cheerleading tryouts for varsity cheerleading and I said, I'm going to be captain one day and it's going to happen soon. And I said that out loud in my tryouts. And from then on, all the seniors were calling me thirsty because I was so thirsty to just have everything. And instead of me feeling like I was being made fun of, because I know I was as I look back on it, I actually took it as an empowering name. I even, my mother had a nameplate made for me that said thirsty and then it had my name under it because I really took it on. Like, yeah, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty for success. I'm thirsty to win. I'm very thirsty. Gulp, gulp, gulp. That's what it is. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, little things like that. And I, I feel like I had to build a tough skin for me to be able to combat that because I, the story could easily be different. It could be 
that I was called thirsty all throughout high school and it made me feel insecure. Mm-hmm. No, it empowered me. And one thing that you and I talked about offline recently, which I think is important to highlight on this show, because we always talk about the fact that we are not a monolith as a community and we all don't necessarily have the same story, is that you grew up with both your parents, mm-hmm. right? And, and, you know, people, I think, assume that we all have the story of like, I was in a single parent household and this parent wasn't present and whatever. And there are those of us, um, you know, within the community that don't have that story. So how do you think that your father, so having a strong male presence impacted you positively, particularly in those formative years of high school? Um, so it's funny because my story has so many layers when it comes Mm -hmm. to my two parent households. Uh, the the man that raised me is not my blood, but he's mm-hmm. been there since I was a couple of months old. Um, and my biological father was around, um, but not around all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a different just respect for my daddy because he didn't have to do mm-hmm. what he did, you know? And so I always looked at him with like just this extra respect because I'm your family. I'm, you treat me as if I'm your blood. Like there, if I would not have been told, I wouldn't have known, you know? So just knowing that there are people out there that have the capability of loving at that magnitude, I don't even know where I'm going with this, but uh, just being able to to have that type of love, that true unconditional love. He didn't love me because he birthed me. He loved me because he loved me. Mm-hmm. And so with that, it it was it was a it's a nice cocoon of love because it's like, I know I'm worthy because this man showed me that I am and he didn't have to. You know, my mother's love is just as important, but it was it's a different type of love. Um that comes from him. And as I get older, I even like the respect just grows even more because he's there for every single thing. And it's funny because I've never, I've, I've actually never really spoke about this on a public platform. Um, just out of respect for him. Mm -hmm. Um, because you know, you know, in our culture, black people got secrets and, um, they don't want to talk about certain things, um, but I do. It's a part of my story um, and it's my story to tell. And I believe it's super important for other black women to be able to um, see that a father's love doesn't have to come from the person that is your blood. It can be an uncle. It can be a godfather. It could be anybody, you know. So, yeah. And I'm glad you you brought that up because it's a vantage point that you don't hear often. Oftentimes we're focused on not who's present, but the fact that the person who helped to get me here on earth is not. That That's usually the point of view where all the focus is, not that there's this man who didn't have a hand in creating me, but loves me, will love me to the ends of the earth and I must be something special. I think mm-hmm. it's it's important to to highlight that. And I'm, I'm happy that you shared the story because it, that is ministry, giving people another way of thinking about um, mm-hmm. different parental units, right? Different family mm-hmm. units, et cetera, uh, especially in the Black community where people have, so many people have this story and oftentimes they don't find out 
the truth in a controlled environment. It, it comes out because somebody comes to visit and says something or they start digging around or something just doesn't add up. Why do I have a different last name? It's all these different things. It's never like, let's sit you down and help you understand your origin story mm-hmm. and help you process this. So I'm glad you, you, you were honest about that because I think more people have the story than we really talk about. Yeah. And my mother was always very open and honest with me about everything. Um, and I have the utmost respect for her because I don't believe, you know, now that I'm thinking about it from a 35 year old lens, I don't believe it was an easy thing to not be with my father, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And choose another path and choose a path, um, uh, that was going to be beneficial to her daughter. You know, it's, it's just, I could have had a totally different life. Mm Mm-hmm. If it wasn't for the decisions that my mother made, the hard decisions that my mother made. Absolutely. So you have this investment in you, this really healthy, solid family structure. What were your career aspirations coming out of high school? (laughs) Uh, So uh, I was destined to be either um, in broadcasting and journalism or an English uh, teacher. Uh, for high school. Um, That's what I went to school for. I went to Lincoln University. I knew my senior year in in high school that I did not want to go to college, but Mm. I had to because there was nothing else. There was like, what else was I supposed to do? I got A's and B's in school. I got a scholarship to go to Lincoln. It just what, that's what I was supposed to do. There no one really showed me anything different. I don't have entrepreneurs in the family. I have one entrepreneur, uh, my aunt that has gone on different business ventures, but she also has a career. She's a midwife. So I don't have any example of like someone that just did entrepreneurship or was in beauty or anything like that. And I remember being in college First of all, an HBCU experience will have you finding yourself in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went, I specifically chose an HBCU because how I grew up was a mixture. It was a nice little melting pot. But um, the high school I went to, the demographic, the only reason why it was a good mixture is because the, the, the white people would take their kids out of school and put them in private school when we got to high school. Um, And so the Black demographic kind of just skyrocketed just by default. Um, But I did experience racism. I did experience different prejudices. Um, I've gotten made fun of because I played lacrosse as um, uh, in high school. And I was the only Black girl on the team. Um, so when I, I chose the HBCU because I needed to find myself as a black woman. Um, but I ultimately found my career in college because I joined a fashion organization called Diana and we did fashion competitions. I did makeup, I did people's hair, I put together fashion shows, um, all those things. And that was what I was doing with most of my time. I, by the time I got to my junior and senior year, I was barely going to class. Mm. Um, and that's what I was doing. Um, but I was too scared. My freshman year, I was listening to Kanye West college dropout and I wanted to leave 
But I was like, how do I tell my parents that I want to leave school? What am I going to do after that? So I Mm -hmm. stayed for four years. And to this day, and I've never said this publicly either. To this day, there's people that think I graduated with them because I stayed all four years. go back to homecoming and people really think like, yo, you, you class of 07. Yeah. That's what I'm supposed to be. <laughs> Wait. And also this is a phenomenon that I, I have learned over time as somebody who went to a PWI is that everybody comes back to homecoming. It doesn't yes. matter if you went there and left to not go to another school, if you transferred to another school, you finish, you did, it doesn't matter. Everybody comes back. I have, I have since learned this. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah. So after college, it, so I had, I had the, the option in, in, in 07 when everyone was graduating. I said, am I going to spend more money for another year and a half of school? Who knows what's going to happen? Or am I just going to throw in the towel? Mm -hmm. And I threw in the towel. I came home, came back to my parents and um, they were like, you got to do something. You got to work. So I started working at Red Lobster, getting the most amazing tips at 21 years old. I thought I was doing it. Um, And then they were like, you're not doing enough. You need something with benefits. And so then I started working for um, the, the local cable company. Um, started doing sales and uh, the way they trained you and taught you sales, you would have thought you went to school for business marketing. Um, So uh, I did that, got promoted a couple of times, worked with businesses with their marketing and stuff. And then one day my, my performance was slipping and I was on the verge of write-ups and um, I went from being in a high performer to barely wanting to come to work. And I got written up one day. And by the end of the day, I was being rushed to the hospital in an ambulance because I was having a panic attack and I did not know what it was. I, I thought I just, I was having a heart attack or something. Mm. Um, and I, <laughs> I get to the hospital and they're like, there's nothing wrong with you. We don't see anything. There's nothing on the skins. And I felt absolutely crazy. And I will never forget the conversation my daddy had with me in the car. He's like, you got to get it together because th- this doesn't make any sense to me at all. And um, I took a leave of absence and I took that time to figure out what made me happy. And I remember that glam and beauty made me happy. And at first I wanted to be a stylist and help with people's images and put together branding. And I started with my pastor and helping him put together suits and all of that stuff. And then I put together a photo shoot one day with some of my um, my brother's friends that were in like did photography and beauty and all of that. And we put together a little photo shoot. And I remember that day I was like, this is it. Like, I have to figure out how I can do this at a high level. And that's when the ball started rolling. So you're on a leave of absence from, you know, typical nine to five. But let's go back to pre-leave of absence to the panic attack. Do you know what, what really triggered it? Was it just the thought of having to be at this job? Was it the fact that your performance was slipping, but you weren't motivated? What do you think caused it? 
I think it was a whole swarm of things um, because I, I really was lost emotionally and mentally. I had no idea who I was, what I wanted to do. I would look around at people that were doing the same job as me that probably were like 20 years older than me mm-hmm. and that have been there with that company for years. And I was like, is this the trajectory? Because this is not what I want. There has to be something bigger. Um, I also have a thing with authority when it comes to a work environment. Um, So a lot of the times when you're in corporate America, somebody that knows less than you is who's telling you what to do. And that just never sat right with me. (laughs) So um, I had a lot of restraint with that. Um, and so that particular day, I think everything just came to a head. Mm -hmm. And another thing with ego for me, it's very hard for me, um, at that time, it was very hard for me to take any type of criticism. Mm -hmm. It was as if the whole world was tumbling down. Like I get a write-up, like I'm student of the month. I don't get write-ups. That was the first time that has ever happened to me. Like what? So it was a, it was just a whole, and I just wasn't, I wasn't mentally there. I was Mm -hmm. drinking a lot. I was uh, out partying all the time, trying to find some type of feeling, but I just was not in a good space. And the one thing that was going right was work. And then when that wasn't going right, everything just fell down. Mm -hmm. And I definitely want to come back to the criticism piece, particularly given the work that you do now. Um, which can draw all kinds of like critical thought. Uh, we can talk about that. But before we get there, so you're on this leave of absence. You have this epiphany that this is what really gets your gears going and this is what you're passionate about. So what was, after that that shoot that you coordinated, what was the first step that you took to start to move toward the direction of your purpose? So I didn't really do anything for a little bit after that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had a friend that, um, hit me up one Sunday and he's like, Tashana, you're not doing anything with this. Like you got to figure this out. Like you're being lazy. I'm, you know, I'm not feeling this. And this was actually one of my college friends, Mush. And, uh, he was like, get on Twitter and just start hitting people up and ask them if they need their makeup done for something. Anybody that looks like somebody. So I went on Twitter and I started hitting up like different video vixens and seeing if they needed their makeup done. And one actually responded. She had an appearance at some lady club um, in Queens. And so she ended up uh, (laughs) coming to my house and I did her makeup. And I remember during that time, she was like, she was really pouring into me. And she was like, if this is something that you want to do, You need to do it and do it full steam ahead. And um, yeah, from there, it was just a wrap. But it it took for someone that cared about me to tell me, yo, uh, you're being lazy and you need to figure it out for me to like jump up and do something. Mm -hmm. So what did full steam ahead look like for you? Oh, full steam ahead looked like me doing that same thing over and over and over again, hitting people up. Um, that turned into me meeting other vixens that landed me on video shoots. 
um, working with Rick Ross and French Montana and that whole, like when MMG was big, that's what I was on every video set. Um, because once you get good with the girls, they want to bring you everywhere and introduce you to all the people. And so then I'm on those sets and then I met directors and became friends with directors. And one director in particular, Mazio, he was shooting like all of the rappers in New York. And so I went to every video shoot, paid or not paid, and I did makeup and I did it for all the girls. And I just kept meeting people and meeting people. I started writing for um, Yandy Smith's blog, Everything Girls Love, um, because I was trying to find different avenues that were going to uh, keep all of the things that I'm in love with, because I'm a writer. I've always been a writer. I've been writing for my school magazine since I was nine years old. So it's like, that's a part of me. So I had to figure out how to do that in a beauty space. So I became a beauty editor and a writer for Yenny Smith's blog. And then through that, I met Takoa Hash um, because I had to interview her. And she was another person that like, I made sure I stayed in contact with so that when the time when God was ready to bring us together, he would bring us together. And he did. And she became a mentor and she managed me and I was able to learn so much from her and get opportunities from her that then catapulted my career in the most amazing way. So full steam ahead was leaving my nine to five. And um, I know that I'm blessed enough to be able to have done that. I know not everyone is in a position to be able to do that. But I had to put ego to the side. I had to say, mom, dad, can I come and live at home? Because during that time, I had my own apartment in Brooklyn, living the life. Mm. And that was a big thing. Like being able to say, I need to come back home so that I can pursue this thing that you guys do not understand at all. And you guys are going to watch me pursue this thing that you don't understand at all. And um, full steam ahead looked like when my parents were telling me to take the NYPD test or the firefighters test or this test, me telling them no. When I had nothing in the bank account, me telling them no and being able to stand firm in that and making a promise to myself that I was not going to go to a nine to five when things got rough. If I was going to work somewhere, it was going to be something in the beauty industry. And that's when I started working for Carol's Daughter and I started working for Matt Cosmetics. And those were things that um, those were jobs that I learned valuable tools for me as a independent business owner now. Um, so full steam ahead is making promises to yourself that you are going to keep and just going and putting like whatever I wanted out of it. That's what I had to put in. And so I wanted 100 percent results and I put 100 percent in and I set up my life so that I could do that because I knew the bills would come. So I made the bills smaller. I knew life was going to happen. So I prepared in that way. So uh, you, you actually like teed up this next segment, you know, personally, uh, perfectly because it's all about the parents. Right. And, 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 and with black parents who want you to succeed and who poured into you, they, they want you to realize your dreams, but they also often are drawn towards a safe path because they want to see you successful and they want to see you with a pension and a 401k and, and something that they feel is sustainable and a safe bet. So going back to your parents' house and saying, this is what I want to pursue um, and I need to move back home. And even though they didn't understand it, 
they let you come back. But was that with certain conditions? Like, okay, you got a year to figure this out or did they put some kind of parameters around letting you come home? Um, no, I wouldn't say that there were any parameters. Um, I'm blessed to have uh, parents that are just like, figure it out and they'll give you the space to figure it out, but not without putting in their opinions. They're going to throw their opinions in there. Um, but there were, there weren't any restrictions or parameters. Um, I think because they didn't know what this was, it was like, we can't put a time limit on this, you know? Um, so they really did let me figure it out. I did have to hear their mouth many, many times, many occasions. Um, and I had to build a thick skin with that. Um, but no, they, they were as supportive as they possibly Mm -hmm. could have with the situation. And what I have learned from this show is that black parents love a city test. I don't know how many people have come on this show (laughs) talking about, you can take a test for the police department or like, I, I guess growing up in the suburbs, I really didn't understand that phenomenon, even though growing up in Jersey, you know, one state over from New York city. So many people have talked about these tests, like someone in their family, like you should just go take the city test for X, Y, and Z. It's a thing. And and it's really a thing for my family because I come from a, a family of officers. So mm. my father's a retired sergeant for NYPD. My mother is also an educator. She works for the New York City Department of Education. Um, and she was an educator, a teacher at that time. Um, so uh, it was, which way you going to go? Like, I know it was disappointing for my mother because I was supposed to follow in her footsteps. I was going to be an educator and I am an educator, but in my own right, not in the traditional sense, you Mm -hmm. know, but I know that was hard to grasp for her because I know she was setting up, you know, things for me. Um, But then also in my twenties, I took the, the NYPD agility test four times Mm. I took it four times and failed every single time. Every single time. I took the test twice. I failed the first time. Um, And then as I was going through the process, there were different parts of the process that I would continue to fail. And at one point, I was just like, God, you don't want me to do this. (laughs) And and this agility test just sounds hard. I I don't know. It's it's hard. (laughs) It's hard. But in my early 20s, like, I was still athletic. Like, you know, I was running football fields. So at that time it was like, there's no reason why I should be failing this. Mm -hmm. I had a trainer to get me ready for the agility test and everything. So the fact that I kept failing and like failing at like the, the smallest things, I finally, the fourth time around, I finally took the, the note from God that this was not it. And I'm also thinking about some of the NYPD officers I've seen. I'm wondering how they passed the ability right. test. But I digress. <laughs> <laughs> like those Times Square officers, I'm like, you scrolling Facebook. If a chase Crazy. broke out, like, I don't know who you're catching, right. but okay. <laughs> but anyway, so thinking now that you you started, I did not know that about your story, that you started working with video vixens and on these, you know, video sets and stuff. But we know that Hip hop is a tough industry for women um, and the the toxic masculinity, as they call it, and the patriarchy and being hypersexualized and and what have you. It's a lot. Did you have those experiences 
early, even though you're working in glam of being objectified or people dangling opportunities in exchange for favors, you know, all the stories that we hear about trying to break into the industry, were you shielded from that or did you experience it? That's a really good question. Um, I believe in a sense that I was shielded in a major way, but I also believe that I took on that that uh, that thinking that I had to look a certain type of way when I went to work. Um, I used to wear a 30-inch weave past my behind. Um, I would show up on set with like short shorts or I would look the part mm-hmm. so that I could be accepted or noticed. Um, and it was cool um, at first, but then... Over time, I remember I was on set and there was a gentleman. He wasn't even anyone. He was just a part of the crew. And he was trying to make some advances at me. And I'm, you know, doing what Tish does. Like, (laughs) cool. And one of the talent, um, uh, one of the, the rappers had to come over. And he was like, yo, chill. Not on my set. Mm. And that was the first time I ever seen an artist like debunk the whole myth of like, this is just how it goes. Mm-hmm. And, and it, I had just uh, more respect for hip hop artists after that. Um, there are artists that don't care what happens on their sets. Um, but because I worked right under the director, he was the one that brought me in. Um, people didn't really mess with me Mm. except that one time. So, um, yeah, it's really all in, uh, what I think society wants me to show up as, Mm -hmm. um, if I'm working, I could be working with, you know, like the wife of a hip hop artist and society or your manager will tell you, don't show up to that house looking a certain way. Make sure you're not over glam. Make sure you look, you know, so that you aren't drawing attention away from her or so that you don't make them feel insecure. And it's like, what is this world that I have to like conform to? And then at some point in my career, I was just like, however I show up is how I show up. And and like, I'm not muting myself. It goes back to that whole dimming my light. I'm not dimming my light for other people's insecurities. You know, it's not happening. I'm a respectable woman. I'm not trying to take your man. Like I'm coming here to do a job and that's it. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe that with the relationships that I have with uh, clients that are the wives of uh, public figures, they, they can see that genuineness in me. They don't, we become friends, you know, they're my sister clients. So yeah. The, that hip hop world will have you all messed up. But when I was heavy in the hip hop world, I also was not partaking in any type of um, mood altering substances. So no mm. alcohol. I didn't drink for four and a half years. And that's when I was heavy in, in the hip hop world. And I believe that had a lot to do with the decisions that I made and the type of outlook that I had on things and how I moved because I didn't have anything altering my perspective at all. Mm. So you use this as a launching pad 
And I'm, I'm glad to know that not every hip hop artist is subscribing by a certain set of unwritten rules um, and offered protection. You are gathering mentors along the way, achieving some level of momentum. When did you achieve uh, a level of success where you felt like, okay, I can move out of my parents' house now? <laughs> um, I don't think I ever came to that point mentally. It just happened. Because after, after about year three at my parents' house, I was comfortable. I was mm-hmm. like, why? I'm going to do what the guys do. I'm just going to stay here and I'm going to save up money. And when I'm ready to go, I'll buy a house. And uh, because, and I say it that way because I, I, I just, from people that I know, as a Black woman, Black women are always ready to run and leave the house and mm-hmm. be independent and build and build and build. And then you have men, Black men, they will stay home and they will gather their money and they will build their lives, which is actually something that Black women look at as um, less than, which is so backwards. Um, but they gather their money and then they're buying houses at 25, 26, 27. You know what I mean? Um, and so I had tried to adopt that whole um, concept, right? Um, but then I got hired for a BET job, The Rundown with Robin Thede, and the schedule was crazy. And we were shooting in in um, Midtown Manhattan and co- going from Long Island to, like, it was just crazy. So I subletted an apartment that was a couple of blocks away from work for a few months. And then with that, with living there, I was like, I don't think I'm going back home. So mm. I need to figure this out. Then I moved to Brooklyn and then I ultimately moved to Jersey. So it was just like, all right, this is where the ball is going. And my parents also made it very clear that I was not allowed to come back. (laughs) And so (laughs) when they made that clear, um, that even put more fire under my behind because I was like, I got to figure out how to make this work. Mm -hmm. And I think those who don't have uh, the courage to leave a, a corporate America or a nine to five, a secure job is because they can't deal with the ups and downs financially of being an entrepreneur or a freelancer or whatever you want to call it. So once you moved out on your own, how did you quell any anxiety, if you had any, around keeping that financial stability? Hmm. I still get anxiety about keeping financial stability because, mm. um, you know, the more success I have, the more my finances grow because I now have a bigger life to maintain. Um, And so that anxiety kind of sits somewhere, even when I'm working on getting rid of it. And I think a part of that anxiety is what keeps me going. Um, But I'm also in a space in my life right now where I'm working diligently on muting that anxiety so that I am not working from a space of lack because Mm -hmm. when you're working from anxiety, that's from lack. Um, and, uh, it's really just making sure that you're prepared. And when I mean prepared, it's like, there's going to be ups and downs. And when you're in business long enough, you're going to see where in the year your ups and downs are. So what are you going to do to prepare? Like for me, usually my downs happen around like the winter season, 
Um, yeah, it's normally from like December to like March is like the downtime for me. Um, and that has happened since day one for the past 10 years. And so what I do now is that that is my time allotted to be with family. I'm not going to fight the ebbs and flows of my business. Mm-hmm. It's whatever. <laughs> so what am I going to do in that time that's going to fill me up? And then now I'm scaling my business to be able to be in a digital space and make money from that perspective. Um, so, you know, soon those, you know, dips won't be as hard as they were in the past. So you mentioned scaling and I definitely want to get into what you've done recently and how you're expanding your business. But was there a singular moment in your career where you thought, oh, this is not just about being glam, a makeup artist, a hairstylist on sets. This is an enterprise that I'm building. Did you, was that one moment? Was that an evolution over time or where you had that, that revelation? It's always, uh, it's been an ever evolving thing. Um, from the time that I even decided to be an entrepreneur, I said that this is bigger than me. This is bigger than what I'm doing. I don't know what the bigger looks like, but this is bigger. Like I'm not, you know, kudos to the people that do makeup from their homes or do makeup in a, in a studio. That's cool. But for me, it was like, I need to be traveling the world. I need to be ministering to people. I need, I've been called to nations. So I have to be able to work in that type of capacity and figure out what's going to get me there. Um, and so each stage of my career has evolved into something different. You know, it went from just working with the video girls to making sure that I'm working in television. And then now, you know, I worked in Mexico for a month on a film and being able to leave my mark there. And then during quarantine, it was really like, I don't have a job. Mm -hmm. I went into working for myself that I would always have control over my income and being promoted and all of that. And now I don't have anything because I have a service-based business. And so how am I going to expand? And so the first thing I did was I started a merchandise line called 413 Collective. I'm currently rebranding that um, because that is a, um, a faith-based merchandise uh, line that has uh, graphic t-shirts because I love graphic t-shirts. And I always... Uh, when I would come to set, I used to um, find graphic T-shirts that would express how I'm feeling that day to then start a conversation because I don't like fluff. I don't like just talking about anything. Um, so to have organic conversations, I would wear things on my shirt or a brooch or something to start conversation. Um, and so I, I turned that into a business and, you know, started T-shirts and then um, I created a beauty course to help other beauty professionals do what I did to build my business, which is using Instagram as a sales funnel into my chair. Um, so I did that. I'm doing that currently. And it's just going to keep growing from there. Um, I'm going to have a book at some point. Um, I'm going to have a product to sell at some point. There's just going to be different things coming because I want to be able to show up on set because I want to. Mm -hmm. Like the moment that we had on Monday with your shoot, like 
that's fun. That's what I want to do. I don't want to get asked to do a job and I'm like, okay, rent is due. So I have to take this. Right. I don't want to be in that space. Now, since you brought up being in a service-based industry and what we've experienced in the last, what is it now? I don't even know, 15 months. Uh, and, and the world's now slowly opening back up. But at a time, everything came to a grinding halt. Productions, events, wedding, literally everything just stopped. When that first happened, I know you got to a place where you thought about these other things that you wanted to build within your business. When it first happened, what were you feeling in that moment? I was scared out of my mind. I had no idea how long this was going to take to pass. Um, And I didn't know who I was going to be at the other end of this or what my business was going to be. Um, There were times that I was like, am I just going to have to figure something else out? Like Mm -hmm. totally out of beauty. Um, But again, it was when I started this, I made a promise to myself that whatever it is, this was going to be the foundation. And so I had to figure it out. And so my boyfriend had started a merchandise line, maybe like right when the shutdown happened. And I started to see his success. And I was like, I think I could possibly do this. And so I started, and that was like three weeks into quarantine. We were just both in our studio, in my studio apartment at the time, quarantining together and trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And it just started to evolve. Because when your back is against the wall, I know for me, when my back is against the wall, some of the best things come out of that. Absolutely. So, you know, I I think I hear this all, and there are people who listen to this show who are like, I want to break into the beauty industry. I want to break into the industry, meaning the entertainment industry, et cetera, um, but are not really doing the work to hone their craft. So mm-hmm. how have you continued to develop as an artist over time? Education, education, education. I'm always taking someone's class. I am um, always offering to assist people. Um, in assisting people is where I gained mentors and where I gained like on the job training. Um, I'm just always making sure I'm in a space to pour into myself. So if I have to invest money in a class, then that's what I'm going to do. If I have to put my egos inside to ask someone to help me, that's what I'm going to do. Um, I've always been the person that's asking my friends to come over so that I can practice a new technique so I can try a new product. Um, I just, uh, in the past couple of years, picked my camera back up. I started shooting my own work because I was tired of waiting for photographers. Um, And I started learning how to shoot my own work so that I would have representation of jobs that I want in the future. Um, And so it's just, I just got to keep doing it and working the muscle. And even 10 years in, I'm still working the muscle. Like I'm currently setting up shoots for June for my downtime for me to practice and for me to shoot and for me to have content as well. So even during the whole practicing and uh, trying to hone my skills, that's also an opportunity for me to grow my business because now that's more content that I am creating. So it's just putting myself out there. And speaking of putting yourself out there, great segue because you've mentioned ego and having a struggle with receiving criticism. 
you are in a field and in a profession where your work is on front street and everybody has opinions. And those opinions are not just the client, right? And and having been um, the talent on a shoot before, I realized it wasn't for me. Let me just say that, right? Like it's one thing to shoot for your own brand and do stuff, but like having been handpicked to do something for another brand. And I remember just like standing there and, and watching a team of people in marketing, you know, whatever the creative department, all looking at a screen with my images and having opinions about she's standing this way, her face is this way. Why is her makeup like this? The hair, you got to fix this, whatever. And then also on top of that is the criticism from people who see you as competition, right? So, so other artists. So as someone who's self-described as sensitive and who doesn't like criticism, how have you maintained some semblance of peace and confidence in a space where criticism is coming from every corner? Listen, (laughs) I have, I have had to work so hard on that. Tokoa would always tell me that people could read everything that's I'm thinking on my face and that I had to fix that. Because if you criticized me immediately, I may not say anything, but there's a look on my face because I'm trying to just gather myself and make sure I'm not, I don't get overly emotional about that. Um, so that has been in a long journey. I am finally 10 years in, I am finally at a space where when I show up to a job, first of all, you hired me for a reason. I know that I'm good at what I do, whatever you hired me for. And I know that if there is a fire, I'm going to be able to put it out. If there's, I know how to fix my mistakes. Um, I know that if someone is not happy with something, I'm going to do what I can to the best of my ability to change it. If I can't, I'm going to, I'm going to relay that to you. So I'm so confident in who I am as a woman, who I am as a business person and who I am as a makeup artist and a hairstylist that it doesn't rattle me anymore. Mm -hmm. Someone can tell me that they don't like the way their makeup looks. Right. And what that's what it would have sounded like to me 10 years ago was that they don't like what I did. Mm-hmm. But now what it sounds like is I've never done your makeup before. I've never done this style. of You've never seen me do your makeup. So what is it about the makeup that you don't like? Mm-hmm. Because I know my technique is fine. Like because there's a difference between you disliking something just because you don't like the style or you disliking something because the technique is horrible. Right. Those are two different things. And I think as artists, a lot more artists need to learn how to detach the ego and understand what the client is saying, be it a woman in your chair or it be a head of marketing. Because the head of marketing doesn't even know what they're talking about when they're trying to talk to you about what they want different. So it's, do you have an example of what you want something to look like? What, like, let's get on the same page. Just knowing how to download that information and not turn it into negativity, but turn it into the information you need to be able to fix the problem and just not taking it personal. And mm-hmm. so I'm doing very well right now with not taking it personal. And it's because I'm confident in who I am as an artist. And the reality of it is, and I say this 
as having been a, a client for a lot of different things, graphic design, this, that, whatever, a lot of people, even people in marketing creative, they don't know what they want until they see what they don't want. And, and you, you have to separate that. Like, it's like, oh, you know, and I've done it. Like, just do what you want. It's fine. Go ahead. Just, you know, you're the expert. And then I see it. I'm like, I actually can't stand this. Right. Like, Mm-hmm. But I didn't communicate what it was that I was looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but we as human beings, and particularly that 26er prototype, we are used to being the superlatives. We're used to being the captain. We're used to being the person that everybody gives adulation to. You live your life standing out. And when standing out has drawn uh, a negative reaction, we have not been socialized on how to deal with that. Because you're just mm-hmm. used to being the best. You're used to being the right. one that's plucked out for all the right reasons. Um, but there's there's education and constructive, it's not all constructive, but constructive criticism. And one of the things that I always remind myself of is that scripture, beware when all men speak well of you. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, there, there's no way you can be your authentic self and please everybody all the time. You're right. You just can't. Right. So to me... Those those moments when there are detractors, even if it's not grounded in like something real, right? As in, mm-hmm. I don't like what you did for me. Sometimes people are just detractors because they hate people, right? right. But, but that tells me I'm on the right path because there's no way I can stand in my truth every day and stand in my power and stand in my talent and stand in my purpose and be pleasing everybody. That means I'm shape-shifting. Right. If, if everybody's on the program with me and like on this bandwagon, that means I'm shifting to please, depending on the audience. Mm-hmm. So I've I've had to remind myself often, and to I take love it as something that you positive. Said that especially about the superlatives, like you 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 have always been the top of the top, and then when you go into life, you're meeting other people that are on the same level as you or better, or you all all of you in the same room have always been on the same level since kids, and I. Compare it to uh, athletes that mm-hmm. uh, are on a professional level. They have always been the best. Right. And then you get to pro ball and you win everyone that was the best. Or when you go to an Ivy League school, now you're with every Valley Victorian, you know? So it's like, what are you going to do that's going to make you step above the rest and it's usually just you just got to work harder you all have mm-hmm. the same skill set and now you just have to work that much harder so that you can be above that so that's 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 interesting that you said that yes so that's one of my like ideologies i've had many a day where i'm in the room i'm like oh everybody is, <laughs> is right, driven, right, right it's like okay i'm, like, I'm not you smart smart just like me okay <laughs> not the unicorn anymore but what i have learned is that even in that, even in those circles, when you are when you are called, right? Like when you are called, there there is still that moment where you're like, okay, like I, I'm not only holding my own, but I'm called to this, and that that separates people who just have the same talents from me because everybody, you know, a lot of people have talents, but it's not a lot of people who are called to certain mm. things. So that that is something I always try to like keep in my mind. Is that like, I know that I'm supposed to be here. I know I'm supposed to be in this lane. If there's seven people 
next to me who may be called too, right? But there's something special. That's that little percentage that's just me. And that's my sauce. And I'm going to sprinkle that sauce wherever I go, right? Mm. And um, as as things, as your career evolves, I think it's harder and harder to do that as you get into, you think it would get easier, but I think as you get into more exclusive spaces, the more exclusive the space, <laughs> the more opportunity there is, I think, for comparison um, and for, for criticism. And also you're being stretched. Yeah. So when you're being stretched, often you're put into situations where it requires you to be a bit more vulnerable and it's not as familiar. And, yeah. and that can feel like a lack of control, right? Which also doesn't feel good for our, our personality types. But um, I think all of those things together, that vulnerability, the not feeling in control, being around people who are equally as talented, being around people who have criticisms, all that stuff, I think are markers if I am moving towards my destiny, I'm walking in my destiny because it's not always going to be comfortable. Right. But I'm here and I'm in it and I'm, I'm making progress. Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Ooh. So I was thinking about this question. Um, and then I could fluff it, but, uh, I had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day, the day I found out that my Nana passed away. Mm. I had a lot of stuff on the table as far as business-wise. And when that happened, um, the world kind of just stopped for me. And I was giving it a little pushback because, you know, you know, just because Nana passed away doesn't mean I can't handle this email or I can't handle this because I grew up in a family where you take care of business by any means necessary. Like I have the parents that if if Nana passed and I was on world tour with Beyonce, they would be like, stay your behind right there. Mm-hmm. Those are the type of parents I had. Um, But when that when 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 my nana passed it was one of those moments where i had to ask myself what is important and is it this business or is it my family or is there a way for me to have both because a lot of the times society tells us you can't have it have it all right and i remember telling my mother i said it is very important to me that I am there for the arrangements and that I help put this funeral together. Um, and I had a big opportunity coming up. Nana passed on Monday. The opportunity was coming Wednesday. And Wednesday was the day that they were going to the funeral home to make the arrangements. And I had to choose between the two. And I remember my mother saying, you know, do what you have to do. You know, if you want to be a part of the arrangements, then you'll be there. If you have to, if this thing is more important, then, you know, do what you have to do. And I remember saying, I have to be there because she would have been there for me. And, Mm. you know, this is my last, you know, thing. You know what I mean? So I, I took it on as, um, and excuse me if I get a little emotional, but I, I took it on as almost like another uh, project that I, I was finally able to put my tools that I've learned and show my Nana that, you know, I could put on a production for you. Mm. That's, that's what it, 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 it turned into, 
you know, you know, yes, I had the help of, you know, my family giving their pointers, but um, at the end of the day, I was there. I was the admin. I was the one answering the emails from the funeral home. I was the one putting the music together. We were there picking out the casket together. I said, this is the person that's going to be doing her makeup. And this is the person that's doing her hair. And, uh, I hired the organist. I hired the singer. Like, I, I, if this was the production for Nana. And um, it was when all of that was done, nothing happened with my business. Everything was just as I left it. I, I actually got more opportunity afterwards. Um, people respected my boundaries mm-hmm. when I said that I was, you know, in bereavement. Um, because I, I think a lot of the times when you work for yourself um, and you're, you are going through a time of bereavement, you try to keep it a secret because you don't want people to think that you're shutting down your business. Um, and this was the first time that I didn't really have that fear of losing out because I was doing something outside of myself and bigger than bigger than me. And it really just taught me that that was a very hard decision to make that most people probably wouldn't have made. Um, And I was rewarded in the end for that because, you know, after we laid her to rest and, you know, I did everything that I needed to do, my career just started to just hit different levels and I was like, all right, like this is, this is what it's supposed to be. Like I'm supposed to be able to take two weeks off for whatever personal situation I need to deal with. Um, but I, I really think that that was a moment that I had to be extraordinary um, because that was not an easy decision to make. Um, and the way I showed up and showed out for my Nana was extraordinary. <laughs> Listen, and as someone who knows and knew the value of, of her late grandmother and what they pour, what they poured into us. And, and I don't know about you, but like when they leave, it gives you a deeper appreciation for like how you're standing on their shoulders. Like, you know it. Right. And you're close to them and you honor them. But when they take flight. And you just start to think back of like everything that you yes. are and, and how much of that is because of them. It takes on a different gravity, both from a place of honor, but also from a place of grief that never really goes away. Because as yeah. you continue to evolve and elevate, you're always thinking back to them and what they what they poured in and what they're not. They're seeing it somewhere, but that yeah. they're not here to yeah. witness and experience with you. Cause I'm, cause I'm even in a space where I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that with the whole, when we go back to the dimming of the light, I'm actually, I'm very hypersensitive, hypersensitive to it when I see people trying to dim my light. And I went through a moment after my Nana passed where I was like, you know, who was the one that really let me shine? And mm. while my parents did let me shine, my Nana let me shine. I used to put on shows at Christmas. I'd be the only one in the middle of the floor putting together a whole routine. And, and my Nana would have everybody watch me. And then I would stop and she'd be like, you done? And I'd be like, nope. And I would keep going. And she always just egged it on. She just let it, you know, just let it go. Just she just let me do me. And it also goes back to 
I'm special. I am loved because, you know, she is the mother of my daddy. And so we're not blood. Mm. And I was her first grandchild. She loved me beyond anything. You know what I mean? And it, it there's no blood that can make that any stronger. And so that was another deeper respect that, you know, I I have for her as well as knowing that I am that special that, you know, people will love me in spite of. Mm-hmm. So when you think about how she egged you on and allowed your light to shine, the legacy that she left for you, as you move into this next phase of your career, you know, the world's opening back up and all of that. But what do you want your legacy to be? Long way off, right? But what do you want your legacy to be? Ah, uh, <laughs> what do I want my legacy to be? Um, that I touch any person that comes in on my path, that I touch them in a way that they will remember how I made them feel forever. Mm. Um, in a good way. <laughs> I know that I can't make everyone happy, but I know that I can leave a little nugget with you that maybe 10 years from now, you'll be like, oh, that girl I met, she said, you know, and it, it's clicking for me now. Um, and I also want to be that person that people watched and were inspired by and knew that they could do anything because I was able to do it. So if God did it for me, you know, God can do it for anyone else. Mm. And you mentioned the merchandise 413 Collective, which I take it that's Philippians 413. Mm -hmm. Tell my church kid. Um, And that you're working on a a rebranding of that uh, and also your course. Can you talk a little bit more about the course that you offer? Okay, so the the course is called Content to Clients. It's a six-week beauty program. It's intensive, and it's where I basically break down all of the things that social media does and can do for your business and uh, teaching them how to make it simple and um, not time-consuming and teaching them how to organize uh, their brand. Uh, But the most important part of content to clients is getting down to their why. So I spend a lot of time um, trying to unpack why are you even doing this in the first place? Because that's how you're going to be able to create your brand messaging. If you don't know why you're doing it, how are you supposed to convey that to a potential client? Um, So it's evolving into almost beauty life coaching, Mm -hmm. which is the goal um, for me. Um, The goal is, you know, to not only teach people technical things to get their business going, but to also teach uh, the things that you need in your personal life or just as a person to be able to translate that in your business. Because if you're not together personally, it's going to spill over at some point. Absolutely. And we, we see it. And I think, you know, when, so we met through Tacoa, friend of the show, former guest, really good friend in life. Um, but I remember that when she first linked us, it was for a gig that I had 
And she said, oh, you know, I booked Tish because I know you don't like a lot of people. Right. And I was like, why do you always say that? And what she means is that I'm about my business and I like people who are about their business and people who bring a certain energy to the room. Um, so what I won't say that I don't like a lot of people, what I, what I will say is I only like a certain kind of person in my personal space. Uh, and, and she is very good at connecting people and pinpointing who needs yes. to be in what environment. So I'm deeply appreciative. Shout out to Takoa, who's gotten yes. many shout outs on this show so far. Um, we love you. And, you know, you've been rocking with me ever since. So, so I love that. Um, but before we let you get out of here, we've covered a lot, a lot of things I didn't even expect to cover. Um, but one lighthearted question, favorite beauty product of the moment. Ooh, favorite beauty product. Favorite beauty product would be my hair. Okay. Um, which is, uh, it's part of the Tina Pearson collection. Mm-hmm. Um, this is some of the best hair that I've worked with in a very long time. I work with it on my clients. Um, and now I am a client of this hair. And it's, it, it just has transformed because I'm rebranding my personal life. Mm-hmm. And so it has transformed my whole, just like everything. So this is my favorite beauty product right now. Well, it looks fabulous. And I'm also loving the Thank color. You. <laughs> Thank you. So tell people where they can learn more about you and all of your offerings. Cause you have a lot going on. So, um, I can be found on Instagram every single day, posting something, um, at Tish underscore Ferguson. Um, But to connect with me uh, via email or to see my portfolio or to be added to my newsletter, to be keep to be kept updated on what's going on with the brand, um, I can be found at tishferguson.com. Well, listen, I've learned a lot. I've known you for a few years now at this thing. I think it's been like seven, six or seven. I don't know. But uh, there's a lot I didn't know that I that I learned today. So I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And of course, we, we're going to have some follow up conversations offline. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but to our listeners, you know the drill. I ask this every episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, like, share, subscribe, tell somebody about it. But also, if you are interested in this space, we, you know, we are all about education here on this show. We're all about connection. Tish mentioned both. Go check out the course that she's offering. Follow the work that she's doing. There's a lot of tidbits, a lot of information. Even if you're not in the course, just go follow her IG. Because <laughs> she's dropping she's dropping nuggets over there. Uh, but listen, we, we know that we're all trying to walk in purpose. And this has been a beautiful story of doing that. And often, I've said it before, I'll say it again. When things are not quite working, you're feeling like you're not in the right space, that is life trying to nudge you into the right direction. Every experience, good, bad, or indifferent, is meant to push you towards purpose. If the nine to five ain't for you, not saying it's going to be an easy journey to walk away from it. This is another story of how it can work when you move towards your destiny. So with that being said, last but certainly not least, you know what to do. Remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.